News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Alex Brooklyn. This week, we have a really good episode for you. Christina Greer and Katie Honan speak with Jeff Mays, New York Times reporter covering City Hall, about all the goings-on in New York this week. And then Harry Siegel speaks with Romel Ojeda of Documented NY. First, for our October series on eulogies, we hear writer and artist Lucy Sant with her eulogy for New York City. Oh, New York. You're not the New York I first saw on Halloween 1959. You're not the New York I visited as a child. You're not the New York that I had commuted to go to high school in from 1968 to 1971. You're not the New York I moved to to go to college in 1972. You're not the New York... I experienced at the height of my youth from 1976 to 1982, approximately. You're not the New York in which I published my first book, which was devoted to you in 1991. You're not the New York that I left much against my will in the summer of 2000. You're not even the New York... I lived in for a year as a fellowship recipient in 2012-2013. And you're barely the New York I knew even a couple of years ago. You know, I'm not going to (laughs) say don't ever change because that is your way. In the words of Elrem Kolhas, New York is a city that will be replaced by another city. Right now, as I speak... In late September 2021, New York seems like a rolling party. It's fantastic. It's also not going to last. It's going to become something else. I can't imagine what future New Yorks have in store. And it's not just one. It's a whole multitude of New Yorks that will come tumbling by. So I wish I had some of those New Yorks back. You know, at least I wish I had cheap rents and cheap restaurants and bookstores, places to hang out in. Those things aren't readily available now. Maybe they will be again. In any case, you have owned a significant part of my life, New York, and that's not going to be undone. Hi, and welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm here today with my co-host, Katie Honan. Hi, Katie Honan. Hi, Chrissy. And we have Jeff Mays from the New York Times visiting us again at FAQ NYC. Jeff Mays, thank you so much for coming back to see us. Thanks. Thanks. It's been a minute. So thanks for having me back. Yeah. Uh, You know, we saw you in studio pre-COVID and the world was very different, but certain things kind of stay the same. So Katie and I have all the questions. Um, I know that you all (laughs) sort of bump shoulders every now and again when you're talking to the current mayor, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio. And so I want to I want to start with with some questions about our good friend Bill de Blasio, Um, because, you know, Offline, I've, I've sort of told you over the years, I just have this theory where he like leans on the line of legality 
And we've seen Black mayors kind of go down, right? Kwame Kilpatrick, Megan, you know, Sharp James in, in Jersey, you know, obviously some D.C. mayors. Like the list goes on and on when it comes to Black male mayors that have um, gone to prison for various things. And I feel like part of it is their fault. Part of it, I think that they're targeted in a different way. Um, but there's something unique about Bill de Blasio that sort of reminds me, even though he's white, he's sort of treated like a Black mayor at times, um, either by the press or by his colleagues, definitely by, you know, the governor, um, in this very sort of much more complicated way that we'll have to have a whole other podcast episode about the nuance of sort of race and place with Bill de Blasio. Mm-hmm. But this latest brouhaha with the cops and like owing taxpayers over $300,000. And, you know, is he using the police force for his own sort of personal limo service? Did he use our money when he was running for the presidency? You know, and we know his first term was filled with all the legal troubles, like the second half of the first term that, you know, he, he sort of circumvented, but they didn't say he was innocent. They just said we didn't have enough to to go forward. And I feel like he's going to renege in himself because when the stories are there, I feel like the horse has already left the barn. So mm. where are you and your reporting and your and your feelings about this mayor? Are we, is it just a tempest in a teapot? Are we sort of picking on a man who's served the city for almost eight full years, done a relatively solid job with a lot of families with universal pre-K, 3K, you know, didn't abandon us during COVID, <laughs> you know, he got it out of his system with, with New Hampshire and Iowa. But right. I mean, you know, he's he's been relatively solid, let's just say for the last year, right? Like in COVID, things could obviously be better, but let me not Monday morning quarterback. Are we right. making a huge deal about this money and what seems to be this new scandal? Or is this part of a larger pattern that we're seeing with de Blasio of just quasi-questionable behavior that we think will follow him well after his tenure as the 109th mayor of New York City. Well, you know, the the interesting thing about Mayor de Blasio, it feels like a lot of these scandals are kind of of his own making in, in a lot of way, you know, like, you know, just making decisions that, you know, someone of his political background, you know, he's a political operative by training, you know, you kind of know the rules, you know, you know uh, where the lines are, what's legal, what's not legal. Um, you know, if you look back at some of, some of the early earlier scandals about fundraising, for example, you know, the rules are clear. Like when people have business before the city, you certainly uh, shouldn't be trying to raise money from them. And, you know, that was a, a big issue. And he certainly, if you've read the, the documents, uh, you know, narrowly avoided uh, getting in a lot of trouble. And, you know, I, I think Katie would agree. You could have seen that it would have gone um it could have gone either way, to be honest. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's a situation where he kind of knows where the line is and he walks very close to it, <laughs> I think, because because of his background. He, he knows what he might be able um, to get away with. Uh, I, I mean, I think with the latest scandal involving, you know, whether, you know, he should be paying for security uh, as he runs for president. You know, I think there need to be some clear guidelines on that. You know, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you shouldn't necessarily have to ask for guidance because it's the mayor of New York City. You know, the mayor of New York City may run for higher office. So what are the guidelines around security? Um, and uh, so, you know, those things should be clear 
They should be precise. Uh, and there shouldn't be any, there shouldn't be any guessing on it. So I, I think there is work to be done around the policies and what should, what specifically how that should be handled. So quick follow up with that, because I mentioned the mayor running for the presidency, but I didn't mention the mayor running for governor of New York. And I feel like this is a bit of an Icarus story where you're flying too close (laughs) to the sun because maybe the courts were like, you know what? We don't have enough to prosecute you, but you've served the city, go retire. And, you know, we sort of no harm, no foul. But when you start running for other offices, then it's like, now I got to investigate, right? Because you won't go away. And we know that Bill de Blasio has been an elected official for several decades. And so this is, I always say, these guys are raised in captivity. This is all they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got no place to go. And New York City mayors don't really have a long legacy of doing much beyond being mayor of New York. We can, Giuliani, no. Bloomberg, no. I mean, Bloomberg doesn't really count because he's got right. the money. Dinkins, not really. Koch, not really. You know, the list goes on and on. So I, I think running for governor makes it such that folks who would normally just drop things and just sort of let it go might not be able to let it go because now you're raising more money on top of the money that is already questionable. Now you have relationships with lobbyists on top of relationships that could be questionable. And now we have to sort of do a little bit more digging. Well, is let's, I mean, I mean, let's see how much money he actually raises. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure that, you know, the presidential fundraising was not uh, stellar. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure he's going to, he's going to do stellar in Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think the interesting thing about this is, look, he has what, two months, two and a half months left in office. And so, you know, the primary isn't until June. So, you know, when things kick underway, as if he does run for governor, he probably will likely be out of office at that point if, if it gets hot and heavy uh, and he throws himself into the process. So, you know, some of these issues, he's not going to have to worry about uh, security detail and, and some of these uh, other governmental issues. He's going to be out of office. Um, you know, I know there are rules uh, involving, you know, who you talk to, who donates money to uh, after you leave office. Um, but certainly, you know, I don't want to dismiss this as well. I mean, this is, you know, $300,000. That's a lot of taxpayer money. You know, you should um, take that very seriously. You should be very careful uh, with how we spend taxpayer money. It's a it's a difficult time. So, you know, that's something he's going to have to navigate. Um, you know, he already is, uh, you know, as the city reported recently, he's still on the hook. Uh, f- previous lawyers from the from his earlier um, uh, sort of investigation. Um, so you know, I, I, I'm just not sure how that's going to play out for him, and and whether there really is a taste for him to run for governor, uh, whether he will be successful in raising money. Maybe that will help him make a decision on actually whether he will run for for governor if he can can't get the fundraisers uh, behind him. So. Um, you know, it's a wait and see situation. Mm-hmm. Jeff. Um, hi, Jeff. Jeff and I hey. used to be coworkers at DNA Info. For those yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> thinking of, like you said, the fundraising. And I know some people here, Bill de Blasio might run for governor and they start laughing. They have a they have a very, I guess, mean reaction, but it's based on, I guess, years of understanding the mayor. Why do you think Bill de Blasio does not recognize that? Um, in some ways, I feel running for governor is even more far-fetched than running for president because maybe because we've seen what happened when he ran for president. But after covering him for so long and having an understanding of him, what do you think it is about 
Bill de Blasio that I guess allows him to keep putting himself in these situations. I, I don't know, man. This is supreme confidence going on right here, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, I understood the presidential one, right? Because in some ways, you know, running for president is a bit of a vanity project. It can it can help, uh, you know, uh, create this sort of image of you, this national image. Um, and certainly, if you think about the mayor of New York City and what they are responsible for, you know, we're, we're talking about a $100 billion budget, we're talking about 8.8 .8 million people. Um, you know, if you make bad decisions, you know, people lose their lives. You know, families are hurt. Um, you know, people don't have housing. So, you know, I, I could see him making the case uh, for trying to run for president, saying, look, I've run the largest city in the country. We've dealt with all these um, serious issues. You know, maybe I can bring this nationally. Um, but given how that campaign went for him, uh, and given his, you know, sort of outlook now, you know, running for governor, you know, I can't wrap my head around it. Um, I, I think it's a case of of someone who just has a high level of confidence in himself. Um, you know, when I asked him about it uh, last uh, couple of weeks ago, he just, you know, he said he felt he had more to give, you know, and he wanted to serve. Um I think there are other ways to serve other than just elective office. Uh, there are lots of ways to be a public servant. And, and you and I, Katie, talk to a lot of those people all the time. Uh, you know, the, the scholars, the, the educators, you know, the people who make New York City go. Um, but, you know, there's just something in him that really likes uh, elected office. Uh, he has this confidence. It's given his background. Like no one, you know, no one thought he was going to be mayor. You know, if you look back eight years ago, you know, he was in the middle of the pack. And, you know, that sort of come from behind victory can can give you this sort of confidence that he still seems to be riding on for some reason. Um, but, you know, he has accomplishments. You know, he does have accomplishments. Pre-K, uh, you know, he said that that's going to be his legacy. That is a major accomplishment. Uh, it's something that, you know, any mayor should be proud of if they were able to institute that program. And he is, you know... He is popular in some parts of the city. You know, I've seen him in, in parts of the city where people are incredibly excited to see him and they want to take selfies. I've also seen him get absolutely eviscerated. So it, it depends on the audience. Um, do you think also it's a little bit of just a, a quick follow up, almost a little desperation where he's kind of dealing with this idea that it's it's over for him here in New York City, whatever right. the legacy of it, some of it is out of his control. But there's that where he still thinks he has one last chance to, you know, serve and then cynically campaign and, and go through all that. Right. I mean, certainly it would it's it would seem serendipitous, right? Like if, if Governor Cuomo hadn't had a scandal, I, I mean, I, I se severely doubt that de Blasio would be running for for governor. Um, you know, it's it's you know, I mean, in some ways I compare it to like um you know, NBA players, right? Like <laughs> these guys have these great careers. They make a ton of money. Um, but, you know, if you hear some of them talk, the question is like, what are you doing to prepare for life after basketball? Because it can be, that transition can be difficult when you're used to being a public servant, when you're used to people like asking you what you think, caring about what you think. You know, um, the guy obviously enjoys uh that part of his job, you know, I, I covered him when he was running for president. 
And to see him out in Iowa and, uh, you know, South Carolina and, and New Hampshire really enjoys talking about the issue, you know, was able to connect with people uh, on a certain level. And so I think if you haven't prepared yourself to say, hey, what do I do next? You know, where do I fit in next? Um, um, you know, that's that transition is going to be difficult. But who knows? This could be a way of, of setting himself up for that. You know, or maybe he sees himself doing something better than than what his options are, are saying now in a run for governor. Maybe that'll boost uh, or at least in his mind, he thinks that'll boost his standing. Um, you know, it just remains to be seen. I, You know, I, I certainly if I was one of his advisors, I'm not sure I would be giving him the advice to run. Yeah, I'm always curious. I'm like, who are your advisors? Who are your donors? Who's your base? You know, I mean, just because I spent a lot of time out in Long Island this summer, and maybe that skewed my perception. But, you know, when you have folks in Long Island talking about how they miss David Dinkins, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, either the rapture's coming or we've lost our minds. Um, because I never thought that I'd hear people in Long Island talk, you know, wistfully about David Dinkins. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say sort of preparing for post-politics life, the way many athletes need to do the same. You know, we brought this up on the podcast. I think Gail Brewer is, you know, a public servant's public servant, but I did have some questions and some issue with her running for office again after such a, I would argue, successful career as a city council member and also a Manhattan borough president. It's like, pass the baton, right? You, you clipped off someone who's 37 years old, and now you're back in the city council, which is great, I guess. You're a public servant. You still have more to give. But like, you know, as, as a Democratic Party, what are we doing to sort of plant the seeds for, for young talent, you know, to help them bloom? Um, and speaking of new talent blooming <laughs> transition, I'm signaling <laughs> before I turn. I want to talk about the presumed 110th mayor of New York City. It's not fait accompli, but it looks like Eric Adams is is sort of painting Curtis Lee was, you know, a, a carnival show that he's not going to entertain. Um, he's out there campaigning. I just read an article in AM New York about how he was, you know, uh, at a community garden uh, that's combating hunger and, and mm -hmm. the unhoused uh, in Brooklyn. I mean, he's, he's clearly campaigning and, and sort of out and about the way he was during the primary. What are you most looking forward <laughs> to in an Adams? <laughs> administration because this is what i've said before and you know I, I think i've said it to you but I, i've said it on the podcast i don't think that this current press corps and this is no disrespect i have a lot of respect for the folks who are in room nine and cover be careful be careful now you're be outnumbered careful. here <laughs> I, I am outnumbered but we're on zoom so i can hide and then pull a cuomo and all of a sudden just disconnect you and log back on in five, a few minutes um but so I do worry that a lot of the press corps is not prepared to deal with this type of politician. I think that many members of the press corps have a, a thin understanding of the intersection of race and class. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Eric Adams is a, a typical Black politician that many people in the press corps are accustomed to covering. And he's a very smart and swift politician. So what are you sort of bracing yourself for looking forward to because I, I I think I'm I'm worried about the coverage of Adams and how Adams will dictate the coverage and sort of throw little things to the left. Everyone runs to follow them and he's working on something on the right hand side. Um that's a concern that that I have. What are right. you looking forward to or are looking out for in an Adams administration, presumably? Well, you know, look, I think th this is going to be a 
a shift uh, from covering Bill de Blasio. You know, <clears throat> I think I saw something where, you know, Eric Adams was out at some SNL party uh, after party. <laughs> you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think we've ever seen Bill de Blasio like after 11, you know, like it's not happening. Or so, before 10. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> It's not happening. So, look, he is going to be a very different mayor, I think. Um, you know, he after he won the primary the day after, uh, you know, he caught up with a bunch of reporters and he was like, look, you guys are going to have fun covering me. Um, you know, he's going to keep the press corps on their toes, I believe. Um, the interesting part, I think, is is he really does have, in some ways, a mandate from uh, people in the city who have felt ignored for a long time, you know, black and brown, uh, Latino, immigrants, working class, you know, poor people to really do some major things uh, if he so chooses. Um, and, and that, you know, when you talk to people that that's always been one of the criticisms of Mayor de Blasio is that he really did come in with with the wind at his back on some of these issues. But um, didn't necessarily follow through on, on some of what he originally uh, promised to do. So I think Eric Adams has the um, ability to do that. Um, I think he's a very uh, canny politician. Um, you know, if you I've seen him out with people, uh, you know, again, the day after the primary, he was talking to folks from 1199 that didn't support him. And, you know, just the way he was courting them and the way they were laughing and joking, you know, he basically won these folks over in, in a matter of minutes. Um, so I think he's very skilled. I mean, what I'm interested in is, you know, he's he's tried to create this sort of big tent and, you know, he's, you know, hanging out with uh, Casamitidis, uh, you know, I wrote a story with uh, my colleague last week about how he's talking to Mayor Bloomberg for advice um, at, at the same time as he's telling, you know, folks that he's one of them. He's he's been poor. He understands what it's like to face police abuse. You know, the question for me is how does how does all that come together under one tent? Because, you know, certainly if you are courting business, it's certainly going to be hard to meet the needs um, of what affordable housing advocates are looking for. You know, those two things often tend to be in direct opposition. Um, so, you know, what I'm looking to see is how is he going to meet uh, these goals that he's setting with just about everybody? You know, um, that, that's the problem when you try to create a, a big tent, whereas de Blasio's tent might have been a little too small. He might have been a little too ideological I'm wondering if uh, how Eric Adams is going to, you know, uh, feed everyone in this really big tent that he's that he's creating, um, you know, going to be a frenetic guy, energetic guy, smart guy, witty guy. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually think it's going to be fun. I think the press corps is going to be up for it. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, when it comes to issues of race, we, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, Chrissy, we, we know that. Um, you know, those can certainly be issues. But, you know, Eric Adams has not been afraid to call that out a couple sure. of times already <laughs> where, you know, he feels he's being covered a certain way uh, because of his race or background. So, you know, don't cry for him. He'll be OK. <laughs> well, I cry about once a year, so I'm not going to waste my <laughs> my annual tears on Eric Adams. That's for sure. Katie, Jeff, do you think I know the one word that comes to mind about Eric that I I don't think I've ever thought of with Bill de Blasio is charming. And that's what you say. He seems to have charmed 
as he points out, multiple aspects of the city, business owners. I saw those photos of him partying in the Hamptons at someone's house, these fundraisers, he's going to the vineyard, he's going to all these places. Um, And do you think, I guess that ties into what you said, maybe the tent is too big. Do you predict, or I guess, when do you predict this type of tension to start between keeping who's, whose best interests are, is he actually keeping in mind? Is it the wealthy people in Manhattan who have second homes that they fled to and that he says he wants to get them from Florida on, on day two of his administration or those who are still struggling, who maybe despite his promises did not get what they needed from Bill de Blasio. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, he's definitely going to have to try to keep his base um, in mind on a lot of these issues. You know, he's going to have to tread carefully. Um, I think even, even as some of his appearances, you know, and, and, and some of the developers and the other folks he hangs out with, um, I think even the appearance of appearing too cozy um, could be an issue for him, you know, because, you know, the, the people that voted for Eric, that really supported him into office, you know, those are the same people who voted for Bill de Blasio and who, uh, you know, feel like at times that he did not uh, have their best interests in mind on on things such as policing. You know, you look at yeah. the uh, Eric Garner case and and the officer Pantaleo who who stayed on the force for for five years. Um, you know, uh, you know when other mayors might have fired him immediately. Um, and so I I think that he's going to have this sort of uh, line where he's going to have to walk, where he's really going to have to try to keep the interests of those folks um, in mind. Um, you know, but that's the thing about Eric is he's a bit of an enigma um, on some of those issues. And uh, he's going to have to figure out uh, how to sort of satisfy both those sides. Um, you know, I think he did an interview with uh, Errol Lewis the other day where he talked about how he wasn't going to really have much of a honeymoon period. And, uh, you know, I think that's true. People, you know, it's been months since the primary. There's an election. He's likely to be the winner. We all know that. Uh, so he's going to have to come into office and immediately start doing big things, uh, start satisfying people. Um, and he's going to have he's going to have that pull from both sides, how he handles that. You know, that's why it's difficult being a mayor of New York City. Yeah. So going back to the charming piece, which I, I find interesting because he definitely has um, that energy uh, that can work or, or not, depending, I think, on the group, um, because he talks to so many folks who have been ignored or feel like they've been ignored during the not just the de Blasio administration, but even the 20 years of the Giuliani and Bloomberg administrations. Right. I think that there there's a way that he speaks to people and they are just so excited to to hear from him. Um, what do you think his relationship with Kathy Hochul will be? I mean, we we had to live through the ugh, nonsense of de Blasio and Cuomo back and forth, which mm-hmm. was so embarrassing. And the only people who really lost out were the citizens of New York. And I would argue that they dropped the ball on quite a few items because they were too busy fighting with one another. And we were just sort of caught in the in their crosswinds. Um, are you optimistic about an Adams Hochul uh, relationship? Let's assuming that, you know, she remains the governor and, right. you know, goes through her campaign and we have a, a tenure of a Hochul Adams. Right. That, um, I was going to say that's the that's the big if. Right. Right. Like, because we know there are other people, including uh, our current mayor, who, who are interested <laughs> in being governor. Obviously, Tish James um, is the biggest name in the room. You have Jamani Williams as Brooklyn. well. So um, I think, um, you know, for Eric, again, 
a lot of serendipity there that that Governor Cuomo is is not governor right now because there's that power dynamic. Um, you know, I think a, a Kathy Hochul probably needs an Eric Adams uh, more than a, a Governor Cuomo uh, would have. You know, um, mm-hmm. I see themselves kind of lining up as that sort of Eric's talked about being the sort of new face of the Democratic Party, that sort of moderate voice that is, you know, welcoming to business wants to be tough on crime, but also is uh, deeply concerned about poor people and civil rights as well. Um, you know, you, you can see those two lining up along those lines and saying, hey, we're both sort of Biden uh, Democrats. You know, we're sort of the moderate, uh, you know, uh, folks who are not going to be extreme, who want to address these issues, but who don't hate business, you know, who don't have the same attitude that uh, Mayor de Blasio, at least publicly in his comments, had towards um, business. So, you know, certainly if you're Kathy Hochul, you, you know, you're going to want the mayor of New York um, on your side. And you can see in early on in her tenure how focused she has been on New York. Um, everything from NYCHA, talking about uh, funding, you know, getting more money to NYCHA, uh, to Rikers Island. She's been very involved in, you know, signing legislation to try to ease the crisis at Rikers Island, you know, transferring people out of the jail uh, to the state. You know, if you if this was Governor Cuomo, you could see how that this would be a mess, right? You could see that a lot of this stuff would not be happening. But because Kathy Hochul, I'm sure, wants to try to make some inroads in New York, um, she's looking for a friend. Uh, her and Eric Adam kind of line up politically in a lot of ways. I, I see the seeing it being a, a good relationship, possibly, um, between those two. Um, absolutely. She definitely needs him, I think. Jeff, I, and we don't want to keep you on too much longer, but looking ahead, right, of the stories that you predict over the next year, obviously the obvious thing is the new mayor and the governor's race. But what else do you think, I guess you and me, will be keeping ourselves busy with figuring out New York City 2022, if we can believe it, at two years out of COVID? Yeah, I mean, you know, someone like myself who is a, a native New Yorker, you know, I worry about the city the future, um, you know, the signs are a little worrying right now. You know, I see uh, what's going to happen with the subway, you know, like, you know, people aren't riding the subway right now. Um, what's what's going to happen with this sort of uh, taxes from real estate? You know, if 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 we don't see a sort of return, a comeback in, in that or a sort of alternative plan, to getting revenue, then that's going to directly affect what the city can do. That's going to affect, you know, how clean the streets are, you know, how much money can we pump uh, into sort of services, uh, some of the issues like violence and violence interrupters. Um, I, I mean, I'm just kind of worried about what's going to happen with the economy, you know, how that's going to affect the future of the city. Uh, and, you know, Eric Adams is coming as mayor, just this really critical time. You know, Mayor de Blasio came in on such a different uh, beginning. You know, the city was just in good shape. Uh, you know, just the revenues were good. Uh, you know, we can see in a couple of years when this federal funding um, sort of dries up, dwindles up, the city could be in a difficult place and have to make very difficult decisions um, about services. You know, how does that play 
with the promise that Eric Adams has made to, you know, black, brown, poor, working class communities, uh, we know that those communities often get hurt first uh, when the budget gets cut. Um, so, yeah, so th- that's really what's on my agenda. You know, is there really going to be this sort of shift um, in how the city works to sort of putting those constituencies first, you know, putting the least among us first? Um, and how do you do that if revenues are, are dwindling? So, Jeff Mays from the New York Times. Thank you for coming on, Jeff. Anything I, I wanted to make a joke about Bill de Blasio does not have the option to go play two years in Europe after <laughs> leaving. But uh, I don't know if he can even play, uh, you know, in Turkey or something. But um, thank oh, you for man, coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. See you yeah. at City Hall soon. Come back. All right. I'll see you later. <laughs> it's Harry Siegel. I'm here with Romel Ojeda a documentarian, small d, and the engagement reporter for Documented, capital D, the nonprofit news site devoted solely to covering New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. You can find them online at documentedny.com. So, Romel, you've been covering New York's rapidly dwindling now $2.1 billion excluded worker fund um, which is there to like provide economic support to people who've been excluded from other state programs, uh, often because they're undocumented, I believe, since before it launched. So I'm hoping you can fill our listeners in on how New York ended up with this fund in the first place, the relief it's actually provided until now, and uh, where, where things stand as uh, the money that came in has mostly gone out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me here, Harry. So one of the things that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic was that the immigrant community and Latino community and marginalized communities in general were the most affected by the COVID, you know, virus, by the coronavirus. And what this resulted in was the vast unemployment of immigrants who had, uh, who did not have documentation and did not have the ability to work from home, like as most other New Yorkers did during the, you know, during the months of April, May, and June. What this resulted was in a an economic uh, despair for these communities that did, were not able to support themselves and were not able to tap into other, you know, uh, pandemic relief programs such as, you know, the benefits and also the unemployment uh, benefits that people could apply if they were working by the books, for example. So community organizations, uh, they were fighting for a fund for more than a year. They wanted to push for new resources that people could tap into. The rent relief program was one of them uh, last year, but also um, what happened at the towards the end was that they organized this twenty three day uh, hunger strike, right? And the, towards the the beginning of uh, April, around like April eighth, the state legislators they finally agreed on passing a lower version of the you know of the budget that they wanted to allocate. Originally, they wanted to pass five billion five billion dollars so that a lot more New Yorkers could tap into it. But they ended up settling for $2.1 billion, which is unique and it has never been done before. A lot of other states have been following, you know, similar steps into passing, you know, this amount of money for undocumented immigrants that were basically left on their own. Um, what occurred after that was the, a lot of uh, immigrants began learning of this, uh, of this, this new, uh, rent relief that they could tap into. And what it did uh, basically was 
an alternative for uh, unemployment benefits, particularly for undocumented immigrants and people working in the cash economy. Uh, what it could do is give them up to $15,600 to people that could provide their you know, proof of residency, proof of identification, and the biggest factor, which was the proof of employment history. Usually they required, you know, valid uh, tax identification numbers, and they had to have filed at least uh, one of the three previous years of tax returns. So that's 2018, 2019, or 2020. The problem was that because, you know, we're trying to help a community that often lives in the shadows and don't have, you know, enough documentation, this created a problem from the very beginning. And a lot of community organizations, they approached the Department of Labor who was in charge of, you know, handling the program and told them, hey, you know, this is too limited and a lot of people would be excluded. And it's exactly what we saw, you know, um, from around the, March, the months of April this year and May, people were complaining that they did not have an, a valid tax identification number. And unfortunately, the IRS was also delaying, you know, the processing of new identification numbers. Usually it would take six weeks, but this time it was taking more than four months. And this didn't allow people to apply for them right away. What this caused is also, you know, a, um, another problem that limited people from applying for the funds that was supposedly, you know, set aside for them, basically. Um, but the process at the beginning, it started at the beginning of August, and it was a lot faster than other programs, you know, particularly mentioned that rent relief program, which took months to release, you know, their, the funds. This um, Exclusive Workers Fund started approving people three weeks in, and they started to see the money on the fourth week, which is fantastic. The problem, however, as anticipated by the original proposal of the, of the budget, you know, for the five million, is that the funds were getting depleted very fast. Um, part of this, you know, is due to the amount of people that actually could apply for the funds and that had, you know, the proof to apply for the first and the highest tier, which is the one for $15,600. Uh, $15, uh, can you explain quickly the, uh, the the two tiers and how this ended up working? I, I mean, I know that you reported that that, that the data shows almost all the approved claims were, were for tier one, which was the more generous tier. Exactly. So at the beginning, when the bill was proposed, it was estimated that only 99,000 would benefit from the first tier. Uh, that's, you know, that's 15,600. And everybody else, an estimated, you know, 200,000 would benefit from the, would qualify for the other one, which is 3,200. And usually you qualify for the first one if you could provide your tax returns, which is something that is very hard to get. And uh, a lot of people were trying to file this year because they wanted to qualify for the bigger, you know, grant. Um, the problem was that we had more people apply, uh, qualifying for the first year. It was not really a problem. It's just that it wasn't anticipated from the 100 25,000 that were approved thus far, 97% got approved for the 15,600, more than what was anticipated before. And this caused the funds to uh, distribute half of its you know, allocated money by the first month of the, after it was open, basically. And last Friday, uh, Governor Huckle basically said that two billion had already been scheduled for distribution by the end of the month of October. What this translates to is that Right now, we have 350,000 people that applied. 
125,000 people approved. Most likely, based on what we're seeing, there's going to be at least 100,000, if not more people that won't receive any benefits. Um, this has caused a lot of uh, you know, concern among the communities that have applied late and also organizations that are you know, trying to push for an extension of Excluded Workers Fund. Uh, there is a, the biggest concern so far is that uh, communities in upstate New York and you know, outside of the city did not have enough time to learn about the funds. There was not enough uh, outreach done there you know, for them to apply and they might be at the end of the list. Um, the statistics show that the New York City has 81% of the beneficiaries of the funds. And that's a huge number because they make up like 79% of the people that were supposed to qualify for it. Um, what's been happening lately is that, you know, Excluded, Works Fund, Excluded Workers Fund Coalition has been holding almost weekly conferences demanding Governor Huckle to expand the, the funds, which is, um, we're not sure if, you know, the governor will do an emergency meeting to expand the, the funds this year. Most likely it would have to be included in next year's budget, which is, you know, by, uh, by 2022 and 2023. So we don't know what's going to happen with the people that applied after, you know, the fund runs out, basically. So let's talk politics for, for one second there. My, my impression, at least, is that what, what helped open up this, this $2.1 billion in New York sort of stepping up here in a way that other states hadn't was, was that we got all of this federal relief that was almost an accident. Like, if, if Trump had accepted his loss more graciously... And Republicans had then held these Senate seats in Georgia, which seems likely a lot of this relief that New York was banking on generally across the board to fill budget holes and then, then to do some generous things like this uh, may, may not have come in. Um, and then th th that's that's a one time deal. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we're looking at, at another billion dollars or two point one billion or whatever amount going forward. That sort of has to come out of existing monies. And looking ahead, assuming this isn't some sort of emergency measure and it's happening next year, it would have to come while the brand new governor and the state legislature are all running uh, for election, re-election themselves, which can also be challenging. Uh, given all that, are, are the people you're talking to, the advocates and others, optimistic that there's more coming uh, uh what, what what's what's their outlook on this and do they see themselves as having uh, political pressure points to help make this happen Russ, it's definitely tricky because there is a lot going on in the economic economic you know and political environment i would say um the biggest push comes from you know uh representatives of the queens area like uh, you know new york city who see that the pandemic's not over yet and as you know, because it is not over, they want to make sure that there is funds allocated for those that apply a little bit late or that they didn't have to, time to apply because they were waiting for their passports, they were waiting for their, you know, um, tax identification numbers, or simply didn't know about it until last week. Um, so that's the biggest, you know, side that they have. They are very optimistic because they feel that this could be. Um, you know, something that could bring more attention into the undocumented community in New York. And that could set perhaps, you know, certain uh, aspirations for other types of budgets that could pass in the future. Um, the biggest, you know, proponent right now is uh, Jessica Ramos, I believe. 
And she's the one who has been outspoken from the very beginning to pass new measures so that people affected by the pandemic that's still ongoing could tap into these funds, you know, whether it is uh, soon, if not later. So one cool thing about the Excluded Worker Fund is that it's a big pot of money and it was relatively non-controversial. This wasn't, you know, leading Fox News broadcasts or, or a jihad elsewhere on the right, so to speak. I am wondering if the push in New York City among electeds, including, I think, some of the same, same figures from Queens, to create non-citizen voting in the city could potentially change those dynamics, make this more of a third rail and, and a more political and difficult issue? I believe so. Um, I think, you know, like, I think now more than ever, we have, uh, we have seen, a, you know, a coverage of the undocumented community, which is, you know, I think it's like roughly uh, half a million of people in New York City that are considered undocumented. Um, we have seen, you know, finally some coverage on that community. But in regards to uh, allowing, you know, immigrants to vote, I think uh, the push is coming from like uh, progressive, uh, I would say like senators and political figures who see the represent representation, you know, for those communities to be needed, you know, in the voting system so that we don't have, uh, so that we can have, you know, certain like budgets like this one, for example, that could benefit people living in the city. It's just uh, who are excluded from, you know, certain programs because of their lack of documentation. So, so th these things have a way of sort of circling into controversy. There was, of course, Elliot Spitzer's attempt to get driver's license for undocumented people in New York. And then that became a third rail for Hillary Clinton, actually, in her first run for president in an interesting way. The, the uh, municipal identifications in New York, that when those happened, we were assured, well, there, well, what if uh, the feds want to use this as a you know, a round them up database. Oh, that'll never happen. Uh, don't don't worry too much about it. And then, then of course, Trump was elected, and and some of those concerns were realized. And already, the broad argument on the right about immigration is uh, that the Democrats are trying to bring in their voters. Right. And of course, doing that with uh, with, with people who are not citizens is, from that perspective just an absolute cheat code. And, and I, I'm expecting, I'd love to be wrong, that this becomes a, a, a larger national story mm -hmm. next year. And I'm worried that, that the focus on that, if that were to occur, could, could be very difficult for actually getting funds and help to people who are, who are here, who are paying taxes, who are doing work, but, uh, you know, uh, are, are often getting paid under the, uh, the table and are not fully documented. Does that seem reasonable to you as someone who's following this more closely or am I a uh, galaxy braining here? No, absolutely. And it's definitely something that has been, you know, that's been seen around the web. A lot of, um, I would say, like citizens and Americans, you know, of certain political affiliations, they believe that uh, immigrants are taking the resources, that that money could be allocated for something else. And that only, you know, people who have uh, legal status and that are citizens should be able to direct where the election results could go to. Um, however, the counter argument is that, you know, undocumented immigrants tend to contribute to the, not just undocumented immigrants, immigrants in general, they tend to contribute to the economy so much more than, you know, what is known basically. Um, and depending on how, um, I think how it is, it is approached, it can definitely be seen as a, I would say as a, as a downside for the 
you know, progressive who try to push this like movement. But if it is pushed in the correct way, and I believe it would be like, you know, using economics as a form to convince, you know, that these are not just people waiting to take anything, you know, taking advantage of the economy, basically, that they are contributing to this and that they should have at least the same, um, you know, the same um, access to these programs that are available to everybody else that pay taxes and that contribute. Bumel, thank you so much for coming on and taking a bit of time to go through all this. Uh, what are you going to be watching in your reporting and your your community engagement going forward? Um, and and with the people who are still hoping to get some of this uh, relief who have not yet. Absolutely. So right now we're focusing on the people that were denied of the program. We're going to be talking to them, see how they feel and what other options they have to you know for other programs that they can tap into. We're making a list of. Um, there is this program in New York City, for example, called Fasting that gives uh, undocumented immigrants specifically the access, you know, access to like a one-time payment that they could pay their landlord or rent areas, which is similar to the rent relief. So we're going to be focusing on actionable information that they can use right away, you know, for those that were not able to tap into the the fund. But also we'll be following uh, what develops from this push from the communities and also the organizations. We're going to see if there is an expansion and how would how that's going to work basically for those that have already applied and are on the wait list. Um, aside from that, we're also we're also following you know everything that's related to the um, to anything that they can use, anything that you know immigrants can use in New York City right now that the pandemic's not over, and just see what's beneficial for them. Well, Mel Oeda of Documented, that's DocumentedNY.com. Thank you again for joining us, and uh, I hope we'll talk again. Thank you, Harry. Have a nice day. You too. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to all of our guests this week, Ramo Ojera from Documented NY, Lucy Sant, writer and artist, and Jeff Mays of the New York Times. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be well, wear a mask, wash your hands, give me my six feet, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>